life's a little bumpy in the Balkans, as Francis Tapon learned firsthand on his multi-year journey across Eastern Europe. Francis is an unusual kind of traveler. He likes to stay a lot longer than the average vacationer and get to know the character of a place. He took three years to explore each country in the eastern half of Europe and wrote a witty country-by-country summary of the region called The Hidden Europe, What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us. Right now, Francis is well into his plan to visit each of the 54 countries of Africa over a three-year period. Last time we checked, he was rounding his way through West Africa. Before he left, he joined us to talk about his experience getting to know the Balkan nations of Southeast Europe, what they're like, what makes them such rivals with each other, and even a few lessons they might be able to teach us in the West about life. Francis, thanks for taking us through the Balkans today on Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you, Rick. We hear the term the Balkans a lot. What exactly does that mean? So the Balkans is a geographic region that you would start up by the Danube River and basically go south of it all the way down into Greece. And so that encompasses what the former Yugoslavia, as well as Bulgaria, as well as Albania, and even a northern part of Greece and Macedonia, of course. I didn't realize that. So the Danube is sort of the north border of the Balkans? That's right, yeah. It's, there's two rivers. There's the Sava River and the Danube River on the northern part, and together they form the northern border of the Balkans. And then sweep all the way down the, to the Peloponnesian Peninsula in Greece, and that's the Balkans. We always know about the, the rivalries and the tumultuous past of the Balkans, Uh, You've got former Yugoslavia, uh, and then you've got Bulgaria, and there's Albania. Talk a little bit about Bulgaria. They used to joke that Bulgaria was like the the 17th Republic of the Soviet Union or or something like this. Its its loyalty and its submissiveness to Moscow was, was legendary. Does that communist ghost still survive in Bulgaria today? In a sense, yes, that... Bulgarians still have a very healthy relationship with Russians. If Russians go to Bulgaria, they kind of feel at home. They feel like a distant cousin visiting because they share the Cyrillic alphabet. So that's one thing. And their Slavic languages are roughly similar. I mean, they can kind of understand each other when they speak. And so as a result, there's a little bit of proximity that still exists today. So yes, to some extent that that you could still say that today, that there's a familiarity between them. Now, in your book, The Hidden Europe, you quoted a British survey that called the Bulgarians the least motivated people. How do they come to that conclusion? And is that what you found when you were traveling in Bulgaria? Yeah, in Bulgaria, it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of Bulgarians there. I stayed with them, and they still have a somewhat cynical view about their government and about their prospects. And so they had this tendency to complain about their future. And so that's the state that they're in. And I think that that is one of the problems that keeps them from being super motivated. They also have more vacation days than anybody else out there, so they don't really work all that hard. They have practically two months' worth of vacation if you add them all up, if you include sick days. I suppose if you grew up during the communist times in Bulgaria, you'd grow up thinking there's no win-win. There's just lose-lose, and honesty and hard work doesn't pay, and you can only trust family and, and close friends. That is true, but it's interesting. Why did they keep some of that cynicism and other ex-communist countries did not? Hmm. And so I'm not sure exactly why that is, but I I kind of point to the collectivist attitude that still exists in Bulgaria, which has a, a benefit. In other words, they do look after each other and they do help each other to a large extent. And I was invited to a lot of the Bulgarians' homes sight unseen. I mean, in one case, I was able to stay at a person's place that hadn't even met me. They just introduced me through a friend. Oh, so yeah. they, they do look after each other, and that's one thing that still exists today. 
beautiful people. Uh, my first uh, experience in Bulgaria, I was in Plovdiv and asked a man where the bus station was, and he didn't speak any English at all, but he left his place and he walked me four blocks to show me where the bus station was. And uh, later on, I, uh, he introduced me to his uh, children who spoke English, and we became lifelong friends. Beautiful, beautiful people, if you can uh, get a chance to meet them. I, I've got an affinity for Bulgaria myself. One country I don't know is Albania. And you called Albanians the friendliest people that you met in Eastern Europe. How so? Yeah, Albanians were interesting because they were closed for so long. They were under Evert Hoxha, which was a dictator, and they were not even doing business with the Soviet Union. They were not doing business with communist China. They were certainly not doing business with the West or the U.S. And so they were completely closed off in the 1990s, 20 years ago, they opened up. And so they, I think, are super friendly because they're just so happy that the world has yeah. decided to come visit them. And so as a result, everywhere I went, even people who barely speak their language, I met this one guy, he was about 63 years old, and he invited me into his home. I stayed for dinner, and yet he didn't speak any English at all, zero, and we were struggling using Russian. But that's that kind of friendliness was quite strong everywhere I went in Albania. I've heard nothing but rave reviews from adventurous travelers who who go into Albania. It sounds like one of the great new places for for thrilling kind of travel in Europe. I I know the only um, connection with Albania a lot of tourists have is when you rent a car in Italy, you got to pay a theft insurance on the car because they're worried about the car ending up stolen and going all the way to Albania. That's what they always say. You wrote about how during communism. Uh, in 45 years of communism, only two non-government members ever received a permit to own a car. There was only 2,000 cars in the entire country. Now they've got 55,000 cars or something, and, uh, and they, they have a society not really built to manage uh, the traffic. Is that causing any sort of uh, congestion or, or confusion in the capital city, all these cars that they didn't have before? Yeah, there's, a, there's incredible congestion out there and a lot of pollution that still exists. It's the quality of the air is kind of bad. But the interesting thing, Rick, is that if you go to southern Albania along the coast, along the Ionian Sea, there, all of a sudden, there's very little traffic, and they have these brand-new roads. There used to be really very few roads, at least certainly not paved roads, but now they've recently made some new paved roads that go along the southern Albanian coastline, which is fabulous, and they're you know brand-new and, hmm. and great to drive on. I've been in several countries in Europe where I remember there were no freeways, and, and now they're laced with freeways because of European money. Who's paying for the new infrastructure in Albania? Is, is Europe taking an interest, or are they just getting it together internally? They're getting most of it internally together, but the U.S. has helped a lot, and that's one of the mm. things that is interesting. When you tell them that you're a U.S. citizen, people really are happy because uh, it's one of those countries, even during the the Bush era where we were wildly unpopular throughout uh, Europe, in Albania and in Kosovo, people were very friendly. The Albanians there were very happy, mainly because Clinton, Bush, Obama have all given heavy support to Albanians and the Albanian cause. And so as a result, they're very happy and welcoming to see any kind of Americans there, which is interesting because, of course, a lot of them are officially Muslims. So about 70% hmm. of the country are Muslim. And so this is you know, kind of eye-opening because we kind of think of Muslims as more antagonistic to the mm -hmm. U.S., but uh, these ones are certainly not. They're probably happy to be done with their wacky dictator, that Hoxha. Talk about Hoxha for a moment. He was a guy who did not trust anybody. And so as a result, he broke off relations with every single person, and they they constructed 700,000 pillbox bunkers and put them all around the country in order to defend itself. So today you go around the countryside or even in the cities, you'll see these little pillbox bunkers made out of concrete, very hard to move, that they're still kind of 
sitting there, whether they're on the beach or whether they're on the side of the road. And the intention was, if anybody decides to invade Albania, they will have these bunkers to defend themselves and they will not have to depend on any foreign power to defend itself. Little souvenirs to the rule of Envar Hoxha. Is that his name, Envar Hoxha? That's right. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com. And Matt from Kihei, Hawaii, emailed us. Matt writes, I've traveled a lot in the area and have had the experience of being warned about the dangers lurking in the next country. Of course, the danger never materializes, but it's sad that the people of the Balkans, bound by similar music, traditions, history, culture, food, and often language, see their neighbors as others, though I believe this is slowly changing with the EU influence. Yeah, that's interesting, Francis. What's your take on on this notion in the Balkans that my neighbor's neighbor is my friend? It's fascinating. I would uh, The way that writer said it was very well said. In other words, there is definitely some skepticism about people who are right next to you, and the popularity of your country increases the farther away you get uh, from it. And definitely something in the Balkans that still exists is this kind of animosity that's kind of uh, left over from the wars that they've had between each other. Still, there's some hope that the younger generation, they were born 20 years ago, and so now they're kind mm-hmm. of growing up, and they didn't grow up under war. And so they are looking at themselves with fresh new eyes. And so there is hope. I was so impressed by the hopefulness in Mostar, in Bosnia, where uh, people from the Christian and uh, the Muslim communities uh, were getting together just a generation after their parents were sniping at each other. When we're talking about the Balkans, most of that is former Yugoslavia. Do you remember, Francis, the phrase they used to say, Yugoslavia is seven nations, six countries, five languages, and all the way down to one leader, Tito. Uh, do you remember that, that phrase that sort of defined how diverse and confused Yugoslavia was? I don't remember that specific phrase, but it definitely is a confusing place when you're looking at it from the outside. And during the whole Bosnian wars and the Croatian-Serbian wars and the Kosovo war, all those stuff, I kind of tuned out, frankly. Mm-hmm. And I decided the only way I'm going to really understand this region is to go there and visit it. And today, it's super safe. You can go and visit anywhere in ex-Yugoslavia and feel very safe there. And the only way I think to decode it is actually go on the streets and talk with the people. I love that section in your book where you talk about 15 things you must do to be a Serb. Of course, Serbs are the sort of the um, foundation, I think, of uh, former Yugoslavia. The word literally means the union of the South Slavic people, and I think the Serbs kind of dominated that union. You, you list 15 things in your book you've got to do to be a Serb. Review a couple of them for us now, please. A drink rakia like water is one of the things. This is from uh, Momo Kapoor's book. He's a Serbian. He, ta- he wrote a book about the guide to the Serbian mentality. So he talked about the fact that you have to live with your parents for at least 30 years. You have to fight with your neighbors. You have to see more soccer games and less theater. You have to save all your money to go to the sea during the summer, and then you have to spend more money than you make. You have to sleep late, and you have to be an expert about police. And finally, you have to swear often. Wow, to be a Serb. That tells a lot right there. (laughs) Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Gretchen is on the line in Minneapolis. Gretchen, thanks for your call. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was traveling in Croatia last fall and at one point spoke with a a young tour guide who, as we were discussing EU membership for Croatia and other countries in the area, 
she expressed the opinion that in view of the long, long history of, as she put it, the inability to play well together in the sandbox, using her words, um, that that didn't bode well for how EU membership in the future might go for these countries. Can you speak to that issue? Boy, that's interesting because the the thought that they don't play together in the sandbox, so make them join a bigger club and they'll have more uh, adult supervision. You're talking about the Balkans. I would say that that is true, that if we can somehow include them into the EU, these borders will disappear for a large part. And as a result, they will no longer see themselves as us and them, but they'll see each other as a family. And that is the intention. The problem is, of course, the EU doesn't really is not too enthusiastic about expanding anymore because of the fact that they've had all these financial problems as of, of late. What's your hunch, Gretchen? Well, I think this young woman was taking the position that that probably would not go very well. One thing I would say is that she's right about the fact that there was skepticism among, among the Balkan people. They're on kind of on the fence. They're kind of like, oh, I don't know if this is going to help us or hurt us. My guess is that uh, if there is peace and if there's economic good times, these uh, long-standing uh, squabbles between ethnic groups in former Yugoslavia would be uh, backburnered. And with the EU, the strength of the European Union, I think peace is a good chance. And now they've just got to work on economic good times, and maybe that'll bring them some hope. Gretchen, thanks for your call. Yep. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye now. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Francis Tapon, and his book is The Hidden Europe, reporting on his three-year adventure through all of Eastern Europe, all 25 countries. Francis, uh, you finished your book talking about where you would live if you lived anywhere in Eastern Europe, and you said you'd live in Montenegro, right in the heart of former Yugoslavia, in the heart of the Balkans, Montenegro. Why? Because it's just such a beautiful place. It's the southernmost fjords of Eastern Europe, of all of Europe, in fact, and so you feel like you're in Norway, but with good weather. It's just spectacular. You have these Italian-like villas, Venetian towns like Kotor, set amongst these rising big fat mountains there. It's, Montenegro is small. It's only the size of Connecticut. And yet it has this wonderful park called Durmitor National Park. It has uh, the mountains. It has the sea. It has great weather. It has it all, and yet, and only about an hour or two away is Dubrovnik, another amazing jewel in Eastern Europe. And so that, to me, is why I picked it. Would you live in the Gulf of Kotor or in the big city to the south or up in the, the high plateau? I would prefer being right in Kotor itself, yeah. in the old town. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's fjord-like. Well, a lot of people don't know what fjords are, but you can really say the Gulf of Kotor in Montenegro is fjord-like in its dramatic beauty. We've been speaking with Francis Tapon. His book is The Hidden Europe, reporting on a three-year adventure through all of Eastern Europe. Specifically today, we've been talking about the Balkans. Francis, assuming we're going to be heading off to the Balkans now, what are a couple of words we should be sure to have in our arsenal so we can connect with those people? You say Dobrodan, which is good day, and Hvala, which is thank you. Francis Tapon, Hvala. Hvala. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to Eastern Europe and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.